Luke chapter 4, verse 31, or you can follow along on the Version Bible app. Uh, when you open the app on the bottom where it says more, you click on events, and Cornerstone should be the first one that pops up. If not, you can search for it. While you're getting there, you know, we've been going through Luke the past several weeks, and up to this point, we've, still, we've really seen a lot of conversation about who Jesus is. It's painted this picture of who Jesus is as a person, as a Messiah. And this morning, as we move into verse 31 of Luke chapter 4, we begin to see the power of Jesus on display. You know, just a few weeks ago, we talked about his temptation in the wilderness. We saw that he withstood Satan in the wilderness. But now the question becomes, could he overpower the enemy and others? MacArthur words it this way. He says, and so if Jesus is going to deliver people from their spiritual poverty, if he's going to deliver them from their spiritual bondage, if he's going to deliver them from their spiritual blindness and their spiritual oppression, if he's going to set the captives free, if he is going to smash down, as Second Corinthians 10 describes it, the fortifications of the deceiver, if he is going to destroy the fortresses of Satan, the lying ideologies, the false religions, etc., if he is going to do that and set the captives free and bring them to salvation, he has to be able to conquer demons. And where we find ourselves in Luke chapter 4, verse 31 this morning, we're reminded of the reality of spiritual warfare. And it seems like that's something that those two words together is something we don't really want to talk about. Right? We want the, I'm just going to avoid it. I'm going to ignore it. Happy thoughts. I don't want to talk about spiritual warfare. But the truth is, we cannot avoid it. It is a very real thing. We are spirit and flesh, and because of that, we are involved in spiritual warfare. And Leonard Ravenhill puts it so powerfully. says, no church group that knows spiritual warfare has wiener roast or even passion plays. There is a real warfare. I have said before that we are an arrogant, self-styled bunch of believers. We believe to the point of inconvenience and then quit. But it is important to understand that spiritual warfare is a very real thing. But the good news is, Scripture tells us how we are to approach it. And so we're going to find ourselves at the beginning in verse 31 here. Chapter 4, verse 31. It says, And he went down to Capernaum, the city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. And in the synagogue, there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. 
And so we pick up from where we left off last week in Luke chapter 4. He had been driven out of his hometown Nazareth. They didn't like what he had to say, and they wanted to see miracles. He didn't do that, and he offends them, and they want to have him killed, and they drive him out to kill him, and he slips through. After the events of last week, we now see him go down to Capernaum, which is the hometown of Peter, Andrew, James, and John. It's kind of a place that he would somewhat make home later on since Nazareth rejects him. And we see that he's here teaching on the Sabbath, and it says that they're astounded at his teaching because his words held authority. The word here means struck out of their senses. They were amazed. They were struck out of their senses. This is the same word we saw used in Luke chapter 2, verse 48, when Jesus is 12 years old at the temple, and the people were amazed at his understanding. And there seems to be this authority in his message, in his words. There's authority. There's power in what he says, and we see this from time to time, Matthew seven twenty-eight through 29, and when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. He spoke with an attitude and with a confidence, and his words held power. You see, a lot of times a rabbi would call back to another teacher or another authority to bring authority to their words. Jesus didn't have to do this because the authority was his. He was the authority. But while we see that Jesus is in the synagogue, a man who is demon-possessed comes and cries out, What have you to do with us? Are you here to destroy us? I know who you are, Holy One of God. You see, a couple of weeks ago when we were talking about Jesus' temptation, we've seen spiritual warfare. Last week, we see, in a sense, the spiritual warfare. And again this week, we see spiritual warfare. And I think it's important to talk about these words, spiritual warfare, because we see so often that we live in a day and age where people don't believe in spiritual warfare. They don't believe it's real. They don't believe it's actually a thing. It can all be explained away with science and thought and logic. Along with that, everything we tend to base our idea of spiritual warfare off of is only what we see on TV and in movies. We view that as the, this is what spiritual warfare is, those things that I turn on my TV and I see on movies like The Exorcist or things like that, like that's spiritual warfare. And because we don't see things like that, we begin to think that it's not real or if it was real, it no longer takes place today. Because we don't see it playing out in everyday life the way we do in the movies. But here's the thing. Just because we don't see it in that stylized way each and every day does not mean it's not real. It is real and it does happen. Remember, Paul tells us this in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Rulers here would refer to the top level of spiritual forces. Authorities are general forces of evil. Cosmic powers carries this idea of the the worldwide battle in the heavenly places is this idea of battle beyond what we see. All these enemies trying to attack. But you see, 
Scripture paints out this picture that spiritual warfare is a very real thing. Jesus dealt with spiritual warfare often in his ministry, and so do his followers. We see it here. We see it in Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20, with the story of Legion. We see it in Mark chapter 7, verse 26, with the Syrophoenician woman, not to mention the temptation that he faced and other moments of battle that he faces with Satan. Think about it. Jesus told his disciples to do what? To drive out demons. Matthew 10, 8, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You received without paying, give without pay. Jesus was thankful when demons were driven out. Luke 10, 17 through 18, the 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw light, or Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And matter of fact, Jesus would rebuke his disciples when they could not cast out demons. Matthew seventeen seventeen, And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. You see, spiritual warfare is real, and our enemy is real. And Luke is at this time writing in a Jewish culture that had a lot of superstition when it came to things like demons. They had a lot of materials when it came to demons. They, they believed that they were spirits removed from wicked people and that exorcisms were done with magical incantations that they would repeat, hoping that there would be power in the words that they spoke to make demons release whoever they had in their grip. You see, demon exorcism was not something that was commonly heard of in the Old Testament. After the Gospels, it's really not mentioned often in other spots of the New Testament. But while Jesus is in his public ministry, it appears that he has several intense confrontations with Satan. R.C. Sproul summarizes it powerfully, saying, It seems as though all the forces of hell appeared in an attempt to undermine the ministry of Christ. I think this is as good a time as any to talk about our enemy for a second. In a world that doesn't believe in spiritual warfare, it also means that there's a lot of people who don't believe in an enemy, don't believe in Satan, don't believe in demons, don't believe that they exist. And so the question becomes is, what are demons and are they actually real? And just like we talked about with Satan a couple of weeks ago, we tend to be on one extreme. We give them either no discussion or thought or we give them too much. But again, demons are very real. J.B. Phillips calls them spiritual agents from the very headquarters of evil. Warren Wiersbe says something similar, saying, Unlike God, Satan is not all-knowing, all-powerful, or everywhere present. Then how does he accomplish so much in so many different parts of the world? The answer is his organized helpers. And just like how, like I said, we talked about Satan a few weeks ago, we need to put this in our proper perspective, or in its proper perspective. So what are demons? They are spiritual beings created by God, fallen angels, and the service of Satan. They are numerous. They are wicked and without any type of morals. They are powerful and they are clever. They oppose God and his purposes and his people in every way that they can. They act in various ways in this world. They deceive and they tempt. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1 says, Now the Spirit expressly says 
that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. 1 Thessalonians 3.5 says, For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. Now see, here's the thing. Though he tempts, can we say that I only cave to my temptations because he throws these temptations at me? Well, I think we need to remember where temptation starts. James chapter 1, verse 14, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. That desire within us, he knows what to hit, he knows what buttons to press, because within us is that sinful nature, that sinful desire, and when we can look all over the place and really see that at our fingertips on our phones is temptation of every kind, we quickly find out it's this desire that we have within us for sinful things. You see, the mnemonic, they possess the bodies, the minds, and the hearts of certain people. But I would remind you here that for those who are in Christ, those who are filled of the Holy Spirit, you cannot be filled both with evil spirits and the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is far are too powerful they can cause illness and sickness Luke thirteen eleven is an example and behold there was a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years she was bent over and could not fully straighten herself again we'll mention here though not every sickness and illness is a demonic thing a demonic thing from an enemy we'll talk more about that next week you see, we need to understand that our enemy is real. His minions are real. We need to be on guard about the way they deceive, the way they tempt, the way they lie, the way they have no morals and try to trap us. But here's one important thing we also need to remember, that while we are in spiritual warfare to those whose faith is in Christ, the battle is really one-sided. It is not an even fight. Mark Moore puts it this way, the Holy Spirit is infinitely more powerful than the created fallen evil spirits. There is simply no contest. What is important to remember is that they are under the judgment of God. And so we see this demon-possessed man come in and he says, ha, what have you to do with us? The ha there is something that Luke adds and it's similar to an O oh or an ah. It could mean fear, hate, or anger, or all three at once. Some translations use the phrase, leave us alone, which carries this idea of what have you to do with us? And it's that phrase, what, what are you to do with us, could be translated to mean, what do you want with us, or why this interference? You have no business with us, just leave us alone, Jesus but notice something very important here. This demon knew who Jesus was. This demon knew the truth. This demon knew that this was the Son of God. And because it knew the truth, it shuddered in fear because it already knows the outcome. He knows he's about to lose. What's interesting here is the fact that this demon knew more about who Jesus was than anybody in that synagogue. And this is why it's so important to remember that Scripture tells us it's just not enough to just believe in Jesus. 
but to also submit to him and to obey Jesus. Because here's the thing, even the demons know who he is. James 2.19, you believe that God is one, you do well, even the demons believe and shudder. But we see Jesus rebuke this demon and tells him to be silent. Why does Jesus tell him to be silent? Well, for starters, Jesus had not yet begun to display or teach the nature of his messiahship quite yet. They were ready. They were anticipating a messiah. They weren't ready. They were anticipating a messiah, but they were not yet ready for a messiah. Jesus had moments where he is downplaying his messiahship, knowing that the people could misinterpret his mission and his task. We see this in John six fourteen through 15. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who was to come into the world, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king. Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Another reason why Jesus tells them to be silent is Jesus was not interested in the praise of demons. And honestly, it's probably not the best publicity. And so Jesus tells him to come out of this man. And I love how Mark Moore describes it. He says, this was not an exorcism. There was no magical incantation or formula. Actually, this was more like a healing. Jesus simply, on the authority of his word, commanded this demon to leave, and he did. And this demon kind of gets one last shot in. I don't know if you ever thought about this or noticed this. He kind of gets his one last shot in. He, he throws this man to the ground, almost like a temper tantrum, knowing that he's lost. He just throws this man down. One last opportunity, if you will, to exhort some kind of dominance. But notice that the man is not hurt. I don't know if he would dare do that in front of Christ. And notice here, the people are amazed. They're amazed, but notice here, it's not... It's not the deed that they're amazed about. It's not the, the healing that amazes the people. It's the word. What word is it that he would tell a spirit to leave? And it does. This is a word that is a power and authority. This is a word that is exalted. The deed here, the, the miracle validates the word and not the other way around. And because of this, news begins to spread about who this man is and what he's doing and what he's teaching. And so we know from this story that spiritual warfare is real, that spiritual warfare is very much a real thing, that we very much have an actual enemy, that this is an everyday battle. So the question becomes, how do we fight? How do we fight? Well, I believe that the answer is given to us in Ephesians chapter 6. So if you want to turn over to Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. I believe the answer is found here. And this is what it says, starting in verse 10. It says, Finally, be strong in the Lord. And then the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. 
For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand firm, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. So what does this passage tell us about this fight that we're in? I think it gives us two very important things to remember. The first one is this. We fight when we stop fighting. We fight when we stop fighting. And you might be thinking, that sounds like an oxymoron. What, is, what does that mean? What do you mean when you say we fight when we stop fighting? Let me tell you the truth here this morning. I so often try to fight by myself. And what I mean by that is so often I think that I can fight the enemy on my own, on my own strength, on my own power, by, by my own abilities. I think that I can do enough on my own to go toe-to-toe with the enemy. And guess what happens to me each and every time that I try? I fall flat on my face and I lose every single time. And that's where we often find ourselves, right? We try to fight the enemy on our own, by our own power, by our own strength, And you know what I realize every time I fall? That I cannot do this without his power, without his strength. And that is the truth for all of us. Without his power, without his strength, we will fall every time. We need to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. He fights on our behalf. He fights for us. Why do we try to fight on our own? And the other thing is this. We put on the armor of God. We put on the armor of God, and with each piece of this armor, something, a tool, a a gift that we have been given to fight the enemy. Let's just go through this list for a little bit, if you will. We see things like the belt of truth. The belt of truth. The, the belt of a soldier was important because it holds all the other parts of the armor together. Without the, the belt, all the armor kind of falls apart. You see, the Greek word for truth here is a word that means to unhide or to hide nothing. The Hebrew word for truth is emeth, which means firmness, consistency, and duration. You see, we have no, we, we need to share the truth. We have nothing to hide. We shouldn't be hiding anything. We should unhide what we know, and that is that our strength, our source of power, 
is in Christ, who is the truth. His word is truth. He is truth. Everything about him is truth. John 14, 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. But see, the enemy likes to preach the lie that truth is subjective, right? Like, what's true for you is not true for me, and your truth is not my truth or his truth or their truth. Truth is whatever you want truth to be. If you think that that should be true, then that's truth. But we know the real truth. Christ is truth. His word is truth. We need to remember the truth, the truth of the gospel that is Jesus Christ. The breastplate of righteousness. The breastplate of the soldier was made of metal plates and chains, and it would protect all the vital body parts, the hearts, the lungs, the stomach. You see, for us, righteousness protects us in spiritual warfare. Again, we know that our righteousness comes not of ourselves, but it comes from Christ. 1 Corinthians 1, 30-31, And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And you know that living a life of righteousness, doing what is right, will help us to stand against the enemy. So we must strive for righteousness. Romans 6.13, Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as though who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Romans 14.17, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Something to think about here, too, when it comes to the breastplate. The breastplate was important for Roman soldiers in the fact that it allowed them to identify with one another in battle. They'd be able to see that breastplate, and they would be able to say, he's a fellow soldier on my side. When we live a righteous life, when we live the way we should, it helps us to become identifiable to the world as someone who belongs to him. Then there's the feet fitted with the gospel of peace. Roman soldiers would wear sandals that had things called hobnails in them, and these are short, heavy-headed nails that would reinforce the soles of the shoe or sandal or boot. This would make it easier for a soldier to move around and would give them traction. And we need the gospel of peace in our life if we are going to stand firm. And here's the thing, this is a peace that cannot come again from ourselves, but only a peace that comes from the Father. He is a God of peace. Philippians 4, 7, And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. 1 Thessalonians five twenty three. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. May your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Then there's the, the shield of faith. A, Roman's, a Roman soldier's shield would have been a large wooden shield and it would have been covered with linen and leather and the leather would be soaked with water and that would help extinguish fiery arrows that were shot at them. How important is this for us? Because our enemy shoots these fiery arrows at us all the time, doesn't he? Lies, 
thoughts that are unholy, hateful thoughts about others, desires to sin, all these arrows being flicked at us, these fiery arrows being shot in our direction. We need a shield. And that shield is a living faith, a faith that relies on and trusts in the power and the word of God. And we're called to live by faith. Habakkuk 2.4, Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Romans 1.17, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Galatians 3.11, Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. A real faith, a faith that relies on God, on his word, is what we need if we are to stand against the enemy. The helmet of salvation. The helmet is an important piece of armor for a soldier. It protects their head from stones, hand weapons, projectiles, fists. A hit to the head could mean disaster to a soldier. And we have a blessed assurance given to us in salvation, don't we? Because of the work of Christ on the cross, a debt that was paid, blood that was shed for us, salvation, a past, present, future thing. 1 Corinthians 1.18, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God problem is I don't think we often think enough about our salvation we don't often think about the fact that the battle has been won we don't think too often about what it is that Christ has actually done for us we don't think about just how big a deal it is when we we think about the fact that he atoned for our sins when we put our faith in him when we follow him when we trust him when we are filled with the Holy Spirit that salvation that we have we don't think about it very often And the enemy gets in our head, tries to make you doubt, tries to discourage you, make you feel like it's not really worth following him in the first place. I think it's the helmet of salvation that allows us to follow the words of 2 Corinthians 10.5. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. When we think of his salvation, it allows us to renew our minds to set our eyes on things above. And when we do that, we remember that the battle has already been won. We can put our hope in him. And then there's the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. A Roman soldier would use what was known as a short blade sword. This would help in close combat. And that is the sword, the word of God. And it is sharp and it is able to pierce us to the heart. Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit and joints and of marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Think back to a couple of weeks ago when we're talking about the temptation of Christ. What is it that he says over and over and over again in that moment? The word of God says, it says in the word of God this. He quotes the word of God over and over and over again. He returns to the word of God. It is one of the most important weapons that we have. In order to stand against the enemy, we need to know the word. 
But let's be honest for a moment. Too many people today, too many Christians today, are biblically illiterate. We don't know the word. We don't read the word. We don't study the word. If we do read the word, it's just to kind of hurry up and check, mark the box. We don't really pay attention to it. We just read it quickly, mark it off of our to-do list, and move on to the next thing. But we don't really know the word. We don't memorize the word. We don't study the word. We don't think about the word. We don't dwell on the word. We're not trying to learn the word. And if we're not doing this, why should we be surprised when we stumble and fall? got to know the word that's why I, I i beat this drum over and over and over again and i will continue to do so because it is an important thing that we do this take advantage of the opportunities we have here to be in the word together monday nights tuesday nights wednesday nights sundays be here be in the word with one another and when you're not here be in the word We've got to know the Word of God. We've got to be in the Word of God. We've got to memorize the Word of God, study the Word of God, and let the Word of God dwell within us. And then prayer. Prayer. Soldiers need to do one important thing on the battlefield. They need to communicate. Soldiers need to communicate with their leaders, and those leaders communicate with their leaders. Soldiers communicate with one another. If soldiers communicate with one another, shouldn't we be communicating with the Father? Shouldn't we be connecting with the Father, praying to the Father, being in communication with our God? That will help us. It will give us the energy, the strength we need as we wear that armor that we are called to wear. He says, pray in the Spirit. We're to pray in the Spirit. And I hear so often, I don't know what to pray. I, I don't know what to pray. I don't even know where to start praying. I wouldn't know what to say if I wanted to pray. What do I do? Pray in the Spirit. Romans eight twenty six through 27, it tells us, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because, of the, or because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we're to pray at all time, on all occasions, at all time, by many requests. Philippians 4, 6, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving let your requests be made known to God. Pray often. And while you're praying... Pray for your brothers and sisters in Christ. Pray for one another. There is power in praying for one another. 1 Timothy 2, 1 and 2, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, and quiet life godly and dignified in every way. All people, brothers and sisters in Christ, those who are not in Christ, pray for them. Pray for your rulers, your authorities, those who are in charge. Pray for all people. And then Paul ends this section by asking for a personal request. He seeks the words that he should speak. And he seeks those words and he wants to speak without fear, with boldness, that he would reveal the mystery of the gospel that he would declare it fearlessly 
and that he would do all of that while in chains, proclaiming the gospel until the day he dies. I know we have a lot of things to pray for, but I want to add something to your prayer list this morning. Pray for all those who share the gospel, for all those who teach, who are, or for all those who preach, for all those who share the gospel, who minister to the gospel that they would speak truth with boldness and without fear. It is a hard task to preach the word. But it is an important task. Each of these pieces of armor helps us to fight in the spiritual warfare. So put on these armors, put on these different pieces of armor, and don't fight on your own, but fight in his strength and his power. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. And as they do, maybe you are here this morning and you have been trying to fight this battle on your own. Maybe you've been trying to do it in your own power, in your own strength, in your own might, and you have fallen over and over and over again. Maybe this morning what you need to do is stop fighting by your own strength, your own power. But lean on him, on his power, on his strength. Or maybe you're here this morning and you've never followed him. You've never given your life to him and you're in the midst of this battle and you feel the weight of this battle. You're constantly finding yourself in these positions of things that you don't want that are are leaving you wanting over and over again. If that's you today and you just need to come and talk, I'd love to talk with you. Or maybe you're just you're here this morning and like I said, you've just been fighting on your own. Maybe you just need to spend some time in prayer. Reconnecting to the Father, talking to the Father, communicating with the Father. If that's the case, you can pray where you're sitting and pray with those around you. You can come up here. I'd love to pray with you. But you see, spiritual warfare is real. It is a real thing. We have a real enemy who each and every day seeks to still kill and destroy, to devour us. The battle is real. So we need to rely on his power and his strength, and we need to put on this armor, these these pieces of armor that God has given us to fight in this battle. So if you need to pray, if you need to talk, please do so this morning as we stand and we sing together.